Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 7 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is Episode 7-9, Bosnia and the Serbs. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. With Milosevic's rise to power, nationalism begins to tear Yugoslavia apart. In 1991, Slovenia and Croatia declare their independence and secede from Yugoslavia. Slovenia does not have many Serbs and gains independence after a 10-day standoff. Croatia, on the other hand, has a large Serb minority and the JNA begins a violent siege. And with that, let's discuss the beginning of the war in Bosnia. Part 3. The War in Bosnia Key Players in the Bosnian Conflict Perhaps it's best to review the major factions and players involved in this conflict. There were four broad groups, Serbs, Croats, Muslims, and international forces. Let's begin with the Serbs. Radovan Karadzic was the leader of the Bosnian Serbs. Born in a small village in Montenegro, Radovan moved to Sarajevo in 1960 to study psychiatry. He was arrested for fraud in 1985 and spent about a year in prison. In 1989, he helped form the Serb Democratic Party. When Bosnia-Herzegovina left Yugoslavia in 1992, Karadzic was elected president of Republika Srpska, the breakaway Bosnian Serb state. As president, Radovan Karadzic was commander-in-chief of the Bosnian Serb armed forces. Therefore, he bore much of the responsibility for the atrocities they committed. Radko Mladic was the top military commander of the Bosnian Serb Armed Forces. The official name of the Bosnian Serb Forces was Vojska Republika Srpska or the Army of Republika Srpska. The media often used the initials VRS or simply the Bosnian Serb Army. VRS received support, weapons, and supplies from the JNA, or Yugoslovenska Narodna Armija. This means the Yugoslav People's Army. This was Yugoslavia's official military. The Republic of Serbian Krajina was the breakaway Serb state in Croatia. And then there were Arkans Tigers. This was a Serbian paramilitary force made up of volunteers. Led by international gangster Arkan, the Tigers operated in both Bosnia and Croatia fighting alongside the JNA and VRS. Now on to the Croats. In Bosnia, there was Ervasko Vijeci Obrane, HVO, or the Croatian Defense Council. This was the main military force for the Bosnian Croats. Ervatska Vojska, or HV, was the official military for the Croatian Republic. HVO and HV often worked together. And now on to the Muslims. The Muslim forces in Bosnia could be divided into three groups. Local Bosniaks, 
foreign fighters, and Muslim rebels. Let's first discuss the locals. The president of Bosnia during the war was Alija Izetbegovic. Alija Izetbegovic was born in Bozanski Samac in what is now Republika Srpska. His family descended from a Belgrade-based Ottoman aristocrat named Izetbeg. However, the family fell from grace when Serbia became independent. Even at a young age, Izetbegovic was politically active. While still a teenager, he joined a group called Mladi Muslimani. Mladi Muslimani wanted to blend Islamic principles with modern government practices. Aliyah got a law degree from the University of Sarajevo and then got into politics. Aliyah Izetbegovic was a devout Muslim politician in a communist atheist state. His views often got him in trouble. He ran afoul of the law in 1970 when he published his manifesto, Islamska Deklarasiya, or Islamic Declaration. In it, Izetbegovic discussed how Islam, politics, and society can work together. He also argued that it was possible for an Islamic society to modernize, but that modernization must be based on the Qur'an. Tito's communist government banned his book, then threw him in prison. Years later, in 1983, Izetbegovic was imprisoned again, accused of plotting an Islamic revolution. This time, he spent five years behind bars. The Serbs justified the rebellion by accusing Izetbegovic of wanting to turn Bosnia into an Islamic republic like Iran. But in reality, Aliyah Izetbegovic wanted to create a modern Bosnian state that preserved its Islamic heritage. The main Bosnian force was ARBIH, the Army of the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina. This was the official armed forces for Bosnia and Herzegovina. Besides the local fighters, there were also hundreds, perhaps even thousands, of international Muslim volunteers, Mujahideen, operating in Bosnia. An estimated 900 Mujahideen veterans of the Soviet-Afghan war came to fight in Bosnia. Some nations, such as Saudi Arabia and Iran, were rumored to have secretly sent fighters into Bosnia. Due to the secretive nature of these operations, it is impossible to know exactly how many international Mujahideen fought in Bosnia. After the war ended in 1995, most of these Mujahideen moved on to other conflicts. But many of them stayed in Bosnia, married local women, and started families. There are several small, isolated Salafi Muslim communities sprinkled throughout Bosnia's mountainous countryside. Besides the local Bosniak fighters and the international Mujahideen, there were also Muslim rebels fighting in Bosnia. These were Bosniaks who sided with the Serbs. One of them was Bosnian business magnate Fikret Abdic. He led a group of Bosniak soldiers who had defected from the Bosnian military. Though he was technically Muslim, Fikret Abdic opposed Bosnian independence and fought for the Serbs. His Serbian and Croatian masters allowed him to operate his own concentration camp where hundreds of Bosnian Muslims were tortured. Finally, there were the international forces, primarily UNPROFOR. 
The United Nations Protection Force, or UN peacekeepers, first entered the conflict in February 1992 during the Croatian War. As the violence spread to Bosnia, they expanded there as well. UNPRO4 would remain in Bosnia until March 1995 when they were replaced by NATO forces. Prelude to War Having lost Slovenia in July 1991, the JNA turned its sights on Croatia, launching a brutal campaign in Vukovar. In Bosnia, President Alija Izetbegovic had backed out of a plan to keep Bosnia-Herzegovina united with Yugoslavia. President Izetbegovic was undecided about leaving Yugoslavia. Whatever reservations he had, the RAM plan did away with them. Leaked in September 1991, the RAM plan was a secret plan to unite all Serbs throughout Yugoslavia into one superstate. This plan was put together by the SDB, Serbia's intelligence agency, and high-ranking officers from the JNA. The RAM plan laid out a framework detailing how the Serbs could dominate Yugoslavia. The SDB would take over Serbian politics and work with the JNA to provide weapons and supplies to local militias. This would allow Croatian Serbs and Bosnian Serbs to dominate their respective republics. The RAM plan shocked the Bosnian government. From that point forward, President Alija Izetbegovic began moving towards independence. The other Yugoslav republics were also alarmed and began preparing for secession. On September 8, 1991, Macedonia held a referendum on independence. 71% voted in favor. On September 19, 1991, the Kosovo Parliament, which had been disbanded by Milosevic, also held a referendum and voted for independence. Six days later, the United Nations Security Council invoked Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. This gave the United Nations the authority to take action to maintain world peace. And then, the United Nations did something so stupid it is beyond belief. The UNSC passed Resolution 713, implementing an arms embargo on Yugoslavia. The exact wording of this death sentence went as follows. Under Chapter 7 of the Charter of the United Nations, that all states shall, for the purposes of establishing peace and stability in Yugoslavia, immediately implement a general and complete embargo, on all deliveries of weapons and military equipment, to Yugoslavia until the Council decides otherwise, following consultation between the Secretary General, and the Government of Yugoslavia. It is not clear, if the Security Council truly understood the impact of this decision. If things went as bad as they had in Croatia, the Muslims would have to fight a full-fledged military force with police weapons. Well, things did not turn out as bad as Croatia. They turned out much, much worse. The arms embargo did nothing to the JNA. It was already an army. Nor did it hurt the Bosnian Serbs because the JNA supplied them with military-grade weapons. The Bosnian government pleaded with the UN to reconsider, but to no avail. Britain, France, and Russia refused to budge. 
President Izet Begovic tried to find a middle ground to avoid conflict with the Serbs and the JNA. In early October 1991, he gave a televised speech declaring Bosnia was neutral regarding the fighting in Croatia. It is not our war, were his exact words. A few days later, while speaking at a parliamentary assembly in Bosnia, Izet Begovic reiterated Bosnia's neutrality. Do not do anything against the army. The presence of the army is a stabilizing factor to us, and we need that army. Until now, we did not have problems with the army, and we will not have problems later. President Izet Begovic would soon regret those words. The Vance Plan For the time being, however, there was little, if any, fighting in Bosnia since it had not yet seceded from Yugoslavia. In the fall of 1991, all eyes were on Croatia. The JNA bombed Croatian President Franjo Tuđman's offices, put Dubrovnik under siege, and were slowly crushing Vukovar. The United Nations appointed Cyrus Vance, former U.S. Secretary of State, as special envoy to Yugoslavia. Cyrus Vance brought all parties involved in Croatia together for peace talks which resulted in a ceasefire agreement. The Vance Plan, as the agreement was called, provided details on the UN's peacekeeping role in Yugoslavia, proclaimed certain areas as UNPAs, or United Nations Protected Areas, and outlined how UN peacekeepers would be deployed. Despite the Vance Plan, fighting broke out again in Croatia. It would take another three months before the United Nations was finally able to enforce the ceasefire. Meanwhile, Bosnia was moving closer to secession. On October 15, 1991, its parliament passed a Memorandum of Sovereignty of Bosnia-Herzegovina. This was not an official parting away from Yugoslavia, but it certainly put Bosnia on that course. Most of the Bosnian Muslim and Bosnian-Croatian legislators supported the memorandum. The Bosnian-Serb legislators walked out. Future war criminal and leader of Bosnia's Serbian Democratic Party, Radovan Karadzic, said the decision would put Bosnia, quote, on the same road to hell as Slovenia and Croatia, unquote. Nine days later, the Bosnian Serbs created the Assembly of the Serb People of Bosnia and Herzegovina. The Assembly formally announced its intention to remain part of Yugoslavia. On November 18, 1991, the JNA finally conquered Vukovar in Croatia. The four-month conflict had led to 13,000 deaths, a million refugees, and massacres against the Croats. Hundreds of Croatian POWs were killed, Croatian homes were looted and destroyed, and the Serbs now controlled nearly a third of Croatia. The Croatian Serbs declared Vukovar as part of the Serb Krajina Republic, the Croatian Serb breakaway state. Humbled by this defeat, Croatian President Franjo Tuđman quickly agreed to a peace plan. Along with Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic and Yugoslav Defense Minister Veliko Kadijevic, they signed the Vance Plan in Geneva, Switzerland on November 23, 1991. The Serbs, however, were far from humble. 
With their victory in Croatia complete, they decided to push the envelope in Bosnia-Herzegovina. The Bosnian Serbs held a referendum voting to form a new Serbian Republic inside Bosnia. The Bosnian government declared the Bosnian-Serb referendum unconstitutional, then held its own referendum voting to leave Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia's federal court in Belgrade declared Bosnia's independence referendum was also unconstitutional. Then the Bosnian Croats got in on the act. They also declared their own state, calling it the Croatian Republic of Herzeg, Bosnia. With the situation deteriorating, the United Nations Security Council passed Resolution 721 on November 27, 1991. Considering the request by the government of Yugoslavia for the establishment of a peacekeeping operation in Yugoslavia, as conveyed in the letter of 26, November 1991, from the Permanent Representative of Yugoslavia, to the United Nations, addressed to the President of the Security Council. The resolution opened the door for the UN to conduct peacekeeping operations in Yugoslavia. By the end of the year, things were starting to take shape in the Balkans. The day after Christmas, Serbia, Montenegro, and the Serb-held regions in Croatia agreed to unite in a new Yugoslavia. Meanwhile, Slobodan Milosevic tried to change the narrative surrounding the Serbian people. The international community blamed him in particular, and the Serbs in general, for the violence in Yugoslavia. To give the impression that the JNA would not occupy Bosnia, he ordered all non-Bosnian JNA troops out of Bosnia. However, 80,000 ethnic Serb troops who were born in Bosnia remained behind along with weapons and supplies. World Opinion When 1992 began, the Soviet Union was dead. With the help of Afghan Mujahideen and Pakistan's intelligence services, the United States had won the Cold War. The new Russian Federation was struggling to deal with this new reality. This allowed the West to dominate the United Nations. Ironically, despite their unified struggle against the Soviets, the Western nations could not agree on Yugoslavia. How much force could the UN peacekeepers use to maintain peace? What to do about the ethnic minorities in the former Yugoslav republics? What would a post-Yugoslavia Balkans look like? Most of Europe had been in favor of Slovenia and Croatia's independence. Germany, with its thousands of Slovenian and Croatian expats, strongly supported independence for both nations. Great Britain and France, however, did not support it. It is important to understand that East and West Germany had just reunited in 1990. The horrors of two world wars, both blamed on Germany, loomed in the background. France and Britain were not eager to see a united Germany gaining influence in the Balkans. Furthermore, Great Britain and France had both supported the Serbs back in World War I. Listen to Season 5 of the Islamic History Podcast to learn more about World War I and how it impacted the Muslim world. The United States remained on the sidelines during this early phase of the conflict. The Americans had their hands full with the end of the Gulf War, the fall of the Soviet Union, and a humanitarian crisis unfolding in Somalia.
Bosnian independence. Croatian and Serbian leaders signed a new ceasefire agreement on January 2, 1992. This time, the ceasefire held and UN peacekeeping troops began arriving in Croatia. This new development was both good and bad. The UN troops did enforce the peace and prevented more fighting in Croatia. But they also provided protection to the Serbs occupying Vukovar. This is how things remained in Croatia until 1995. With Croatia somewhat calm, the focus turned to Bosnia. It was still unclear how things would turn out there. In many ways, the Bosnian Republic was a smaller version of Yugoslavia as a whole. Bosnia-Herzegovina was about 44% Bosniak, 31% Serb, and 17% Croat. The Orthodox Serbs primarily lived along the eastern borders of Bosnia, while the Catholic Croats mostly lived in the western regions. The Muslim Bosniaks primarily lived in the central region and within the capital, Sarajevo. Bosnia's secession was all but inevitable. The Bosniaks and Bosnian Croats had seen what the Serbs did in Croatia and wanted no part of that. The prospect of living under Milosevic's oppression was too much. Serbian media did little to mitigate the tension. Instead, they exacerbated it by repeating stereotypes about Muslims and Catholics. Serbian media portrayed Muslims as religious fanatics who helped the Croatian Ustashi persecute the Serbs during World War II. Bosnian Serb leaders began congregating in Pale, a small town about 10 miles east of Sarajevo. This would become the Bosnian Serb headquarters during the war. Bosnia's parliament announced another independence referendum to be held on February 29th. The day before the referendum, the Bosnian Serbs drafted a constitution declaring it was part of Yugoslavia. Voting began on February 29th and ended on March 1st. Over 60% of the country voted. The Bosnian Serbs boycotted the elections. The results were clear. 93% voted to leave Yugoslavia. Everyone feared this would happen. Yet, everyone knew this would happen. And now that it happened, everyone was afraid of what would happen next. Slovenia got out of Yugoslavia with a 10-day war. Croatia left after four months of intense fighting and thousands of deaths. And even now, it needed UN troops to keep the Serbs at bay. What would happen in Bosnia? European community negotiators Peter Carrington and Jose Coutilliero came up with a new plan that became known as the Lisbon Agreement. The First Shots There are conflicting reports about the first shots of the Bosnian War. Some reports state a group of Serbs opened fire on a crowd in Sarajevo in April 1992. But the more popular report suggests a shooting at a Serb wedding started everything. On March 1st, the last day of voting for the referendum, Milan Gardovic married his wife, Diana Tambor. The wedding took place at the Church of the Holy Transfiguration, an Orthodox church in Sarajevo. Afterwards, Milan, 
his new wife and their wedding guests walk to another ancient church called the Church of the Archangels. The two churches were roughly two miles apart. Along the way, some of the wedding guests carried Serbian flags. A car stopped near the procession and four Bosniak men jumped out. They tried to grab the flags and a fight broke out. Someone pulled out a gun and fired a shot. Nikola Gardovich, Milan's father, was struck and killed. The shooter was identified as Ramiz Delalic, a small-time Bosnian thug. The news of the killing spread quickly, touching a deep nerve within the Serb community. An Orthodox man was killed on his son's wedding day by a Muslim in broad daylight. From the Serb perspective, this justified all of their concerns. Radovan Karadzic, president of the SDS and political leader of the Bosnian Serbs, said the murder was a clear example of why they wanted a union with Serbia. President Izet Begovic condemned the attack, as did the mayor of Sarajevo. The tense relationship between the three communities strained even further. Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Croats, and Bosniaks set up roadblocks in the regions where they dominated. Two days later, the results from the referendum were in, and Bosnia-Herzegovina announced its independence from Yugoslavia. On March 18th, all three ethnic groups accepted and signed off on the Lisbon agreements mentioned earlier. The Lisbon agreements proposed dividing the country into three semi-autonomous segments called cantons. Each canton would be based on its majority ethnic group. All three groups would share government power. At first, the Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Croats, and the Bosniaks all accepted this plan. But then, ten days later, President Alija Izetbegovic changed his mind and rejected it. It is not entirely clear why Izetbegovic backed out of the Lisbon plan. But there was speculation that U.S. Ambassador Warren Zimmerman promised Izetbegovic support if he chose to reject it. Zimmerman denies having made any such promise. In late March 1992, more civilians were killed in Bosnia, this time in Bozanski Brod, a small town on the Sava River, about 87 miles northwest of Sarajevo. There had been fighting in this region for weeks, ever since the Bosnian Serbs first declared their territory as Republika Srpska. During a particularly intense engagement, a combined force of Croats and Bosnian soldiers occupied the Serb village of Sijekovac. During the occupation, at least 58 deaths, mostly Serb civilians, were confirmed. The war in Bosnia begins. With Bosnia-Herzegovina gone, Serbia and Montenegro were all that was left of Yugoslavia. This rump state of Yugoslavia issued a new constitution and named itself the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia on April 28, 1992. This new Yugoslavia began with some promise. Its first prime minister was a Serbian-American businessman named Milan Panic. Panic advocated for a peaceful end to the conflict, negotiations with Croatia and Bosnia, and lifting international sanctions. However, the president of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia was a hardcore Serb nationalist. 
Dobrika Kosic, who had supported Milosevic back in 1989, also supported Radovan Karadzic and the Bosnian Serbs. Despite their political differences, both Milan Panic and Dobrika Kosic turned against Milosevic as the fighting in Bosnia intensified. A small but growing segment of the Serb population was getting tired of Slobodan Milosevic. Unfortunately, it would take nearly a decade for them to do anything about him. On April 1, 1992, several Bosnian Serb militant groups, including Arkans Tigers, attacked Bijeljina, a city in northeast Bosnia along the Serbian border. Despite its proximity to Serbia, Bijeljina was predominantly Bosniak. However, Republika Srpska wanted this city as its regional capital, so the Muslims had to go. The local Bosniaks had a small, disorganized force, but they were no match for the Serbs who were backed by the JNA. Once the Muslim resistance was defeated, the real horrors began. The Serb militants questioned the local Serb residents to point out non-Serb households. The Serb militants went door-to-door, dragging out, beating, arresting, raping, and killing non-Serb residents of Bijeljina. Some Croats and Serbs who protested the violence were also killed. But the vast majority of the deaths were Muslims. Bijeljina was the first city to fall to the Bosnian Serbs. In the weeks and months to follow, the Serb militants would initiate a process of cultural elimination in Bijeljina. Bosniak intellectuals, businessmen, and artists were arrested or exiled. Before leaving, the Bosniaks had to sign away their homes. Mosques and non-Orthodox churches were destroyed. Years later, a UN investigation estimated at least 48 civilians in Bijeljina were killed. The ICTY, or International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia, has declared the events in Bijeljina as an attempted genocide. Bijeljina was the first city to be ethnically cleansed by the Serbs. In fact, the English phrase ethnic cleansing was created to describe this process in Bosnia. A few days after the Bijeljina massacre, fighting broke out in Kupres, a small town in central Bosnia. Though it was predominantly Serb, it also had a significant Croat minority. Serbian and Croatian forces fought for control of Kupres, which was strategically vital for delivering supplies. The Croatian forces included the HVO, the Bosnian Croat Militant Group, and HV, the official army of the Republic of Croatia. But they were no match for the Serbs who were backed by the JNA. Within a week, the Croats were defeated and the Serbs had captured Kupres. On April 6, 1992, the United States and the European Economic Community recognized Bosnia and Herzegovina's independence. That same day, Serb artillery began shelling Sarajevo. The city of Sarajevo would remain under siege for the next three years. It would be the longest siege in modern military history. In the next episode, we'll discuss the escalation of the Bosnian War. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content 
by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. The Islamic Vibes Podcast is a weekly podcast brought to you by Islamic activist and history enthusiast Majid Hussein, a.k.a. at Muslim Podcaster. His What's Happening Muslims show is an unscripted and casual chat with fellow brothers about the current issues which every Muslim needs to know. While his Just Thinking show is a thought-providing discussion with esteemed and expert guests on specific Islamic topics. Brother Majid interviewed me on episode 19 of the Islamic Vibes podcast and I highly encourage you to go listen to it. The Islamic Vibes podcast, keeping those vibes Islamic. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season one of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 1-9. Today, we're going to discuss the Qadi, or judge, during the Umayyad Caliphate. Let's begin by answering the question, what was the role of the Qadi? Well, Tariq Tabari and other historians often mention who was appointed as Qadi during the Umayyad period and when these people were appointed as Qadi. Despite this detailed information about their appointments, there isn't much information about the roles of the Qadi and the limitations of their power and authority. There are no existing documents detailing the duties and responsibilities of the Qadi during the Umayyad period. In fact, much of what we know about the Umayyad Qadis actually comes from documents written about them during the Abbasid period. What we do know for certain is that almost all Qadis were Islamic scholars and they were almost always muhaddith or someone who was very well versed in the science of hadith. This is understandable because it would be important for a judge, for a Qadi, to be well versed in the hadith and be able to discern the reliable arguments of the of the plaintiffs and the unreliable arguments from the plaintiffs. Now, since we haven't had that much information about the Qadis during the Umayyad period, scholars and historians have had to make a lot of guesses about the role of the Qadi and how the Qadi operated. 
So there are two primary camps during our time regarding the role and the evolution of the Qadi during the Umayyad period. There's one group that believes the Qadi was the natural evolution of the Hakam. Now the Hakam was something like an arbitrator for the Arab tribes and clans during the days of Jahiliya before the message of Islam came to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. The Hakam listened to disputes from members of the tribe or the clan and he tried to judge between them and try to come to some sort of um, amiable agreement that all parties could accept. The Hakam was often an elder, but not always. However, they were always respected for the ability to be fair and to broker a deal between the disputing parties. An example of the role of the Hakam, even though, even though he was not a Hakam at this time, is the story of Prophet Muhammad before he became the Prophet and the rebuilding of the Kaaba. If you're familiar with the story, there was a point of time when the Prophet was a young man and the Quraysh decided to rebuild the Kaaba. After it was rebuilt, well, while they were, they were rebuilding it, they had to take the black stone out of the Kaaba. Once the Kaaba was completed, the different clans within the Quraysh began to argue about who would have the right to replace the black stone into the Kaaba, who would have that honor to replace the black stone. And the argument, as the story goes, got so heated, the various clans were very close to coming to blows. However, they decided to have someone judge for them or arbitrate between them. And so they decided that the next person to step through the door, would they would ask them to make a decision about which clan would have the right, would have the honor to replace the black stone. And as it would go, that person, the first person to walk through was Prophet Muhammad himself. And once again, he was not the prophet yet. So the different clans, they explained the, the nature of the dispute. And when Prophet Muhammad heard, the, heard what they were arguing about, his ultimate decision was to take off his cloak, lay it down, and place a black stone on top of the cloak. Then one representative from each, of, from each clan grabbed the portion of the cloak, lifted it up carrying the black stone, and placed it back inside the Kaaba. And Prophet Muhammad himself pushed it in the last bit of the way into its niche. So that's an example of pre-Islamic arbitration. Even though, once again, the Prophet was not necessarily a Hakam, though he would definitely play that role once he got to Medina.